Good morning, good evening if you're in the United States, and uh, thank you for joining us for this discussion on AUKUS, um, the pathway forward. I'm Michael Green, I'm the CEO of the US Study Center. Um, I am joining you uh, today from Canberra. Uh, my colleague, uh, Peter Dean, is joining us from Sydney and my colleague Haley Chan also in Canberra. So let me begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of Australia. For those in Sydney, the University of Sydney stands on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation uh, in Canberra, the Nanawa Nation. And we pay our respects to their elders past, present and future um, and further acknowledge the traditional owners of the country um, which we are on and pay our respects to those present and emerging. We are going to discuss uh, the uh, new announcement by um, the prime ministers of Australia and the United Kingdom and President Biden of the United States about the optimal pathway forward for AUKUS, the US-Australia-Korea uh, um, trilateral um, capabilities building agreement. This announcement focused on pillar one of that agreement, which is the delivery of um, nuclear-powered submarines to the Royal Australian Navy. We'll dive deep into that. Um, the regional reactions, the technological complications, the, the strategic and operational logic of this pathway. We might say a little bit about pillar two of AUKUS, which focuses on developing other advanced capabilities um, to enhance deterrence among the US uh, and, and UK and Australia, but potentially including other allies such as Japan, uh, Korea, Canada, uh, and NATO countries. Um, so I am the CEO of the US Study Center. I've been here and thoroughly enjoyed it since August. Uh, it came from the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Georgetown University, served on the NSC staff before that as the senior uh, special assistant to President Bush for the Indo-Pacific. Um, joining me also, Professor Peter Dean. Peter is the director of the Foreign Policy and Defense uh, Program at the US Studies Center. Um, he was professor uh, at the University of Western Australia before that and chair of their first defense studies and inaugural director of the UWA Defense Security Institute. Peter's a prolific author. His 10th book is coming out soon. Um, he also, among his various writings, had the pen for a good part of the Defense Strategic Review, which will be made public in a matter of weeks, I believe, and we'll also do a webinar on that. Um, Haley Chenner is the director of the U.S. Studies Center's Economic Security Program. Um, she is um, experienced in the world of policy and think tanks. She advised uh, foreign and defense ministers, worked at think tanks in Sydney, uh, Canberra, and Perth. And in her current role is examining the intersection of economic issues and national security. And I think Haley Aukus is certainly in that category. We'll have a bit of a discussion amongst ourselves and then we'll look forward to your questions. I'm going to see the questions in the Q&A part of my screen so you can submit them um, as you're listening and we'll get to as many as possible. I wanna first um, start by getting uh, everyone's reactions to the announcement. Uh, early Tuesday morning Australia time from uh, the U.S. submarine base in San Diego. I might go first on this one, um, but we've been following it. We've we've seen press reports. We've been talking to people. We have some idea uh, what you know might come out. Um, first reactions for me, I'll tell you. Um, the thing that struck me was um, no major surprises from what we've been uh, seeing in the press and hearing. No major surprises, but when I saw, for my part, the details of the optimal pathway forward, I, I did think this really is in a complicated um, uh, procurement decision, the biggest, as the prime minister said in Australia's history, um, this really is the optimal path, because like you, I've puzzled what's the best way to do this. 
and as I saw the, the plan, it, it occurred to me, look, the criticism is um, you either put something in the water quickly that doesn't have capability that you want in the long run, or you wait for that nuclear um, propulsion advanced submarine, and you don't have anything in the water for decades. Seems to me this was the Goldilocks solution, um, a staged series of um, deployments of deterrence capability beginning fairly soon. I mean, in the next few years, you'll see autonomous undersea vehicles like Ghost Shark that provide some, some, some AI-driven early uh, deterrence capability undersea. And then you'll see US, Virginia class and Royal Navy ships um, beginning to berth in HMAS Sterling. And that puts deterrence capability in the waters around Australia from two close allies. Um, and then the three US, Virginia class subs uh, coming online by the early 2030s, as many as five, and then uh, the new build, the most advanced state-of-the-art um, nuclear-propelled attack submarines uh, designed in a way where um, Australia can shape um, a British program for the optimal crew size, um, the optimal configurations, because the Virginia class is very big, probably twice as big as Australia really needs for the long run. So, you know, some of our friends have said it's a Frankenstein, it's unusual, it's not the way the US Navy would do it, where we would have um, a, a simpler linear path. But given um, the complexities, it, my first reaction was, well done, actually, this, this, this was really a hard puzzle, and they probably got the mix and the timing to get deterrence early while building the longer term capability they need. Now there are problems, we'll get to those, but my first reaction was that that was a pretty impressive effort by Admiral Meade um, in defense. Um, Haley, what was, what was your first reaction? Thanks so much, Mike. And I really enjoy talking about this because it is the biggest thing to have ever happened um, in the defense and security field, probably since the end of World War II. So I'm not going to lie, my first reaction was complete shock at the price tag. Obviously, I'm the Director of Economic Security, and I wondered, what does this mean for Australia's economy and also the workforce? But just the headline figures, um, you know, $268 billion to $368 billion. I had been expecting the price tag to be around $200 billion because we knew that the previous attack class submarines were going to cost around, you know, $150 billion maybe. Um, but I expected a much more with the nuclear powered variant. I thought maybe $200 billion. I wasn't expecting the figures that we saw. And the other reaction I had was, why would we do it... Uh, Haley, I think you've hit mute by accident or someone muted Apologies. Um, Yeah, so 100 billion in, in leeway really surprised me because it's so imprecise. So to me, that says that the government is being honest in the sense that it really doesn't know how much it will cost um, in 30 years time. <laughs> so there is a big amount there for us to question, you know, exactly how much this will cost. So that really got me thinking. Um, but one of the other thoughts I had was Biden had this unusual comment about subs to the moon, but he was making an analogy about the moon race and how these are national mega projects where we all have to spend a lot of money. And I actually thought about JFK's speech where he said, um, we choose to go to the moon, not because it is easy, but because it is hard. And he didn't then follow up that statement in that speech by saying, and it will cost $244 billion because that is the amount in today's money that the space race cost the United States. So where he had this hugely inspirational speech about going to the moon, he didn't then say, and the price tag over the next less than 10 years 
is going to be $244 billion. So I think you're seeing a new approach is by the Australian government um, to actually explain a lot more detail about what it is planning to do. And I think it would be interesting to discuss that a little bit later on about the pros and cons of being so upfront uh, with the Australian public and the world about the costs. So some sticker shock, but points for honesty. <laughs> um, uh, Pete, what was your reaction? Um, look, it, th this was big, it was bold, it was historic, it was very trusting. I mean, the level of trust the three countries are demonstrating between each other, and particularly from the United States sharing such technology in the way that it's announced to do so, but also that it, you know, that that's very high reward, but it also makes it very complex and very high risk. So there's a potential really, really big payoff here for a whole range of things. It's very complex. It's it's quite high risk. It's a very high risk, and but and it's over a long period of time. But I think that when I sort of had that initial reaction, then I got to the speed to capability question. So for me, the government had really made it clear, and this had you know come out in various statements, particularly when Richard Miles said in Paris that there would be no interim conventional submarine. So there had to be a way to get to speed to capability. There had to be a way to get a nuclear-powered submarine quickly. Um, and that was what delivered with the, the sale of the Virginia-class boats. And that's the thing that, in the end, really blew me away. The, the US government, who um, basically is struggling to build enough Virginia-class submarines as well, the Navy would like to operate more of them, is looking at upscaling their own production to then sell a couple to Australia to avoid that capability gap and get that speed to capability. And that is probably, I think, I mean, the whole thing's big, but if I want to drill down on something that's really, really big, is that US commitment to do that. Yes, it's got to pass Congress. We've got to get it through Congress, but I think that's really important. And then, as Haley said, it's the sticker price, right? You know, you walk into the car yard, you look around for the new car, and they've got the lovely stickers on the windscreen, and we tend to go for the sticker price as well. And that's a big sticker price. Like, it is a really big sticker price. And, of course, they gave us a $100 billion leeway, as Haley said, but no one's talking about $268 billion. Everyone went straight to $368 billion. And then my next reaction was, well, hang on, this is 2054. Treasury can't get right, you know, the budget numbers one year in advance. They've never got it right for the forward estimates of five years. Me picking a number. Um, I think in 2054 about what inflation would be, what the exchange rate will be, what the, the cost of living will be is probably no worse, and trust me, I'm not an economist, than Treasury picking that number. So I think that's another reason we get that big $100 billion band with um, is because it's really hard to predict what things will cost in 30 years' time. So the number was eye-popping, and as Haley said, points for being candid with the Australian people. But... Uh, before we came on, we were doing a quick back of the envelope. We're talking roughly over three decades. So we're talking roughly at the current defense spend, something like 20% of Australia's defense budget, maybe 25%. Um, and if that's right, by comparison, that's about what the British pay as a percentage of their defense budget to maintain their nuclear powered subfleet. So it's, it's sort of what you'd expect if you want this capability. It also raises the question whether the defense budget um, is going to be the same size. Australia spends about 2% of GDP. US spends about 3.5% of GDP. Japan's going from 1.25 to 2% of GDP. So there is a sort of question about whether the denominator stays the same uh, and whether there might be um, public support for more defense spending. But even if there isn't, 
the share of the defense budget this is going to take is not way out of um, perspective or out of um, proportion when you think of what the British are doing to have this capability. So that raises the question, how important is this capability? Why submarines? Is this really worth um, uh, investing such a big part of the defense budget? Um, and I have my views, but I want to start with you, Pete. We'll go to you, Haley, after that. Yeah, and look, just on the numbers, I think it's interesting. Um, Pat Conroy and Richard Miles have pivoted quickly from the 368 billion number to 0.15% of GDP out of a defense budget that's sitting around about 2.1 to 2.2. And they're kind of were indicating that, you know, if they boosted up the budget a little bit, pay for this, you get to that kind of 2.2% of GDP that they were talking about anyway. So that's another interesting way to do it. And, and of course, cost comparative. Um, you know, Kim Beasley, our former defense minister, ambassador of the United States, pointed out that uh, recently in an article in the 1980s, when we he was worried about low-level threats, they were spending about, you know, 9% of the budget, the budget outlay from the government on this. He said, now in the modern era where we're worried about great power conflict and a major war, we're only spending 6% of government commonwealth outlays on defence. So that's interesting. But specifically for submarines, well, I, I think uh, they're really critically important. If you look at, say, the 2020 Defence Strategic Update, that, that makes a statement that says that submarines are significant to every element and stage of Australia's maritime security. And of course, we can't overlook the fact that while we're a continent, we're also an island. And we live in the Indo-Pacific, which is a, a region dominated by maritime geography, unlike Europe, which is dominated by continental geography, land geography. We're dominated by maritime geography. And there's a few simple statistics that really bring home why that is really important. 99% of Australian trade comes and goes via cargo ship in and out of this country, including pretty much all of the, the fuel and the, the oil and the diesel that we rely on for our trucks and our cars and our um, emergency services. And fuel security is really important. We have the third largest um, exclusive economic maritime zone covering 8.2 square million kilometres. And inside that 8.2 million square kilometres is our fisheries, our shipping lanes, our oil and gas fields. So the economic and conservation value of this is absolutely enormous. And this means that basically these sea lines of communications are, as the Chief of Navy pointed out, the lifeblood of our nation. And, you know, the protectors of that maritime security, the number one part of the, the Defence Force that protects maritime security is our Navy, obviously. And the platform of choice for navies in the modern era, the capital ships, um, they used to be battleships once upon a time in our aircraft carriers, but in my view, the modern capital ship is the submarine and the nuclear-powered submarine is the Rolls-Royce of uh, submarines and an American submarine with an American technology in it that's been posed here is you know, the very pinnacle of that. And as a CSIS report, Mike, we used to work a number of years ago, pointed out US technology in this field at best guess is a generation ahead of everybody else. And somewhere between 10 and 20 years, that means ahead of any other potential adversary or competitor that we're looking at. So what this will give us is the ability to maintain a regional maritime security capability edge. It, it will be really important to securing those sea lines of communication, really important to deterrence. And of course, what we're doing here is also contributing towards the military balance in our region, ensuring that there's a balance of power so we can ensure that there's the maintenance of peace and prosperity. So 
Um, I think they're the big headline stuff. You know, you can get into what role submarines play and what things that submarines do, but ultimately they are the cutting edge in terms of maritime security. And for a maritime country in a maritime region, dependent upon maritime trade, it's really critically important part of our defense force. And the nuclear propulsion piece, the Rolls-Royce, actually it may literally be Rolls-Royce, <laughs> um, uh, piece of this is critical because diesels have to use snorkels to refuel. You, you can't yeah, look, absolutely. get duty a thousand kilometers, you know, protecting the approaches to Australia. Yeah. And, and what we're getting here is, is a massive leap forward in military technology. Our diesel electric submarines, we currently run the Collins class are the best diesel electric submarines in the world. But again, you can't avoid geography. We are a really big country with really big sea lines of communications. Diesel electric submarines are much, much slower. They have to come to the surface often to snort to recharge their batteries. And in a world where there's increasing intelligence surveillance from reconnaissance from satellites to you know, sensors in the water to undersea sensors, it's becoming more and more difficult for conventionally powered submarines to be survivable and to maintain stealth. And if you're a submarine, that's what you actually, that's your, your, your primary capability edge over everyone else is your stealth and your ability to disappear and be invisible. And a nuclear powered submarine allows you to stay underwater for very long periods of time, not to have to snort. They've got much longer range. And I think, you know, every submariner you've, I've ever spoken to in Australia will say, um, if they had a choice, they'd have a nuclear powered submarine from a tactical, strategic and operational point of view. And that the limiting factor for Australia not going down this path beforehand was that we couldn't as, an, as a non-nuclear powered state from you know, domestic production, we would have to rely on the United States and the United Kingdom to share this technology. The US has only done it once before in the 1950s. So this is a very big move from them to support this capability for Australia. The, um, the reality is that um, this emphasis on undersea capabilities um, tells you a lot about the historical chapter we're entering. You know, when the, 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 the battleship was champion that was sort of the pre-war era. In the post-Cold War era, era, the aircraft carrier and the carrier task force was champion. Why? Because the US had air and maritime dominance in the Western Pacific. The fact that submarines and undersea warfare where the US has a generational lead technologically are now the capital ships, if you will, of the US Navy and going forward, probably the Australian uh, British Navy, that tells you something. It tells you we've gone from uh, air and sea dominance to contested strategic environment where survivability, i.e. stealthy nuclear-powered submarines, are, are the literal um, uh, you know, king and queen of the chessboard. Um, now, that said, as Haley, as you pointed out, um, you know, to quote JFK, we don't do these things because they're easy. We do them because they're hard. Um, this is going to be hard. <laughs> and there are going to be a lot of technological, um, yeah, we already talked about the budget, but there are going to be technological and other challenges. What are you focused on? in the coming years as the obstacles you think the three governments, particularly the Australian government, have really got to tackle? Yeah, great question. And I mean, um, if I can just also sort of set out some parameters to my comments, you know, yes, Australia needs new submarines. Yes, I agree they should be nuclear. Yes, I agree we should be spending more on defence. But where this decision sits for me is actually this question about putting it in context, because context is everything, right? So, for example, I think the percentage of 
national resources being spent on this, not only like not just one service, but one capability is probably out of proportion for me with where I think we could be spending the resources. So for example, you know, where else would you spend the resources? I mean, I did my um, calculations a little bit differently when the government said um, defence spending would go to around 2.2% of GDP and that AUKUS would cost about 0.15% of that. Well, that's 7% of the defence budget, so about 1 14th. Um, do I think that we should be spending, um, you know, 7% of defence budget on this one capability? I would actually like to see the funds distributed not equally between the services, um, but actually a little bit more to Air Force, I think, than just to this, this one capability. And um, one of my other concerns is actually this question around operating two different types of submarines. So we won't just have the Virginia class, we will also have um, a hybrid that we develop with the UK that we will call the AUKUS class, which sounds incredible. I mean, AUKUS class, I mean, that's a really good selling point just as it is. Um, but I do worry about uh, having these two different classes of submarines um, in terms of how they could be staffed differently or um, if we have, you know, missing parts and the logistics around having two different types. I mean, we do get into debates then about how quickly we can actually bring these into service. Um, but those kind of debates aside, I would like to see, you know, in the context of other national spending, where does this sit? And yeah, my view is that I'd like to see it more evenly split to Air Force. And also just to give a little bit of context around some of the other things we're spending on. I mean, the nation is at a point now where we are spending a lot of money on a lot of different things. We've got the National Disability Insurance Scheme. That's costing more than 4% of GDP right now. We also have... Um, Health that's costing, um, oh, sorry, health is four four and a half percent. NDIS is one point five percent, and also aged care is around about one percent of GDP. So there are these huge costs, and things like aged care are going to cost more in future as well. So, I think the the point about you know this is a thirty year endeavor. Um, you know we don't see some of these other national requirements expressed over a thirty year period, so it's hard to judge in that sense. Um, but it started a national conversation, I believe, about where Australia should be spending its, its treasure. And I agree, we do need to spend more on defence. And that's one of the hardest uh, portfolios to champion because it's not a domestic expense. And the Australian public can't see the benefit of it. And they, frankly, they can't see submarines because they're underwater. <laughs> Um, so I think, you know, it's great that we're having this conversation and it's very interesting having the government being so um, upfront and frank about it. And like I was chatting with Pete about this earlier, no other government uh, says these things about, you know, their capabilities or how much these capabilities will cost. And I also think that raises another really interesting um, point that the government is doing by being so transparent, which it is juxtaposing its transparency and its openness with China's opacity and the fact that China is not telling countries in the region um, why it is they are building their military, why it is China has the world's large, sorry, largest navy now, you know, 340 uh, warships and also their own nuclear submarines. So I really think it's interesting and clever how the government is doing this. But while I think it will play well in the region like Southeast Asia and the Pacific and they've reached out to France and they have reached out to China to give China a briefing too, 
Um, I wonder how it will play out domestically because a lot of Australians don't know why we need this capability um, and they hear the price tag, like we said, and they they wonder why they should sacrifice things like health or NDIS or aged care potentially to be able to support this capability. Um, so, yeah, really lots to unpack there. Hopefully I answered your question. <laughs> You know, when we surveyed this question at the Australia Centre uh, uh, last year, um, a narrow majority of Australians supported AUKUS. Of course, they hadn't seen the price tag. Um, there are also polls that show for the first time Australians actually support an increase in defence spending, which is which is interesting. Pete, just quickly on the Air Force question, um, love the Air Force, but um, do you think there's going to be some trade-offs in terms of service, uh, inter-service balance of budget? If it were me, I'd rather have the sub Marines, to me, they're close to existential in terms of national defense, but the Air Force mission is pretty important. Do you think there's going to be a big trade-off? Uh, look, I think it depends on, on the unknown future about where the costs go on this. And, you know, one of the risks I think we do have with such a large single procurement area, like Haley said, it does have the potential to eat, you know, the defense budget. We've seen in the past governments who have been saying to defense, you know, that they need to then find savings within defense to offset things. Um, I think the, the, the difference for the last couple of decades is the governments and both sides of politics have recognised now the, the much greater threat that we're carrying. And uh, and there's been an overall indication from the Defence Minister and the senior ministers and the Prime Minister and the government that defence spending will rise above overall. One of the really interesting parts of the short-term budget piece is that the DPM made it very clear that uh, there's going to be no new money in the forward estimates for this um, program. The attack class money that was set aside for the French submarine has been discontinued, has been allocated this, they've got to find an extra $3 billion and defence will have to find that from within um, the defence budget. And then it's after the forward estimates, the, the following five years that the number starts to really ramp up and that the government will have to prepare to fund that into the budget a little bit more. The other thing he said is that, you know, the Defence Strategic Review, which I worked on, is going to be made public next month. Um, and the government's made real indications that that will cost more. Um, and they also said that there will be initial savings in that to offset some of these things. And then that will be announced in the budget. So we know they've committed to the Defence Strategic Review public version and the government's response to that document in April. The budget's the second Tuesday in May. So when we get to that gap, I think we'll we'll have a, a much more holistic view of how they're going to allocate the money between the services and what the balance is. There's lots of wild speculation about what's in the DSR and what the government will respond to that. But in that balance between the services, the strategy, the approach and where the nuclear-powered submarines fit into that will become more clear next month when we see that. And then the budget stuff, which is the really hard part. I mean, you can come up with a great strategy, you can come up with a great capability plan, for governments, the big thing is finding the money. And as Haley said, we've got you know, a rising cost of living, we've got rising fuel and energy prices, we've got NDIDS and all this other stuff. But to me, it's like, a, you know, and I've heard a lot of commentary around um, this where people have said that, um, you know, oh, if we didn't do this, we could solve the housing crisis in New South Wales, or we could fully fund this or the other. Well, my response to that is it's like building a house, right? You can build the house and you can have the best backyard if you don't have any plumbing. You can build a wonderful house and give away having windows to have the best lounge room getting around. And to me, if you build the house and the security part is the front door and the window locks. So you can build a wonderful house to the best of your ability, but not put a front door on it, not put any locks on your window and then say, okay, we'll take the risk that everyone will just be nice in the neighbourhood and leave us alone. 
but I don't know anyone who's willing to build a house without a front door or a back door or any window locks on it as well. So it's it's not about choosing one or the other. I really worry about that analogy. It's as Haley said, it's about the balance about how we get, and it's the government assessing the risks and the costs of these things and balancing because we want the NDIS and we want infrastructure and we want education, but we want defence and security for that as well. So how do you balance those things out? And can I just jump in there too, Mike, uh, because I also had a house analogy and I want to talk about it. So, Pete, I completely agree with you, right? Like it's it shouldn't be an either or choice. And these figures are so far in the future, we really have no idea, you know, which of the different phases of AUKUS we will actually get to. Like, who knows what will happen in 20 years? Maybe the phase three where Australia and the UK co-design an AUKUS class, you know, who knows whether or not that will happen in, in with the, the government of the day and the other financing pressures that they have. Um, so I completely agree with, with what you were saying. But the analogy I had about a house was, so my dad's a civil engineer. My father-in-law is a builder. Decades ago, they're both retired. Decades ago, they built houses and I need a new house. Um, it would make sense for me to get my civil engineer father and my builder father-in-law to build me a house. Um, but the truth is that actually the difficulty for me in finding a plot of land, upskilling them to actually know the new building codes and, and fit all the regulations of today and the heartache in trying to spend all of that money at home and getting, you know, their resources together to help me build something. I actually think we would be better off just buying a house, an existing house. And in this analogy with, with sub nuclear submarines, I appreciate there is no existing off-the-shelf nuclear submarine that we could buy from the US or the UK, and we're going to have to help them upgrade their production lines so that they can build more faster for themselves and for us. But I think if you were going to look at this purely from the perspective of um, how could we get them faster and cheaper, we would be better off um, buying just Virginia-class submarines or just the Astute class and not actually creating a new AUKUS design. However, that would be probably politically impossible because even prior to 2013, uh, the Australian government had promised that Australian submarines would be built here in Australia, just like the Collins class was. So I get that politically it's very difficult for the government to say, we're just going to buy from the US or UK. But I honestly think that if you saved $100 billion by purchasing direct from the US or UK shipbuilders, of course, like the shipbuilding jobs in Australia wouldn't, wouldn't be here. And I would feel very sorry for the people, the 20,000 people who would not have new jobs. But I wonder, couldn't you invest that $100 billion in defence tech innovation or defence, uh, you know, other defence industry in Australia and things like Pillar 2, where, you know, we're going to be designing with the US and UK, cyber, undersea water, autonomy, AI, quantum. Um, I wonder how much you could use $100 billion in Pillar 2 and actually up, you know, increase the Australian workforce. Um, like you look at Australian companies now, you know, we don't have the major tech companies like Meta um, or Apple or Google, but we do have incredible tech companies that have, um, you know, uh, been homegrown like Atlassian um, or other defence tech companies like Advanced Navigation. Um, I mean, I'd personally love to see the savings put into that side of defence innovation um, rather than Australian shipbuilders, sorry, Australian shipbuilders in Adelaide. All right, all, all Australian shipbuilders direct your correspondence to Haley Shannon. <laughs> Look, uh, Haley, the I'm sure the 20,000 jobs primarily in South Australia are a big 
um, political driver. You you don't do these big defense productions without domestic politics. My favorite example is the F-35 in the US. Um, parts of the F-35 are built in every state of the union. Why? They need congressional support. Um, South Dakota, which has a population of you know well less than a million, they make the models of the F-35s that that they pass out to visiting VIPs so that every state, you can't, in a perfect world, you're right, but the politics are tough. The other complication, of course, is, as you can see from public correspondence from members of the US Congress, there's not a lot of enthusiasm in the Congress for adding nine boats for Australia to a line where the US desperately needed those boats for the US Navy. And so three to five seems about right politically. I, I think it also has an advantage for Australia, frankly, because if you're buying nine boats out of dozens, as much as the U.S. Um, is is transferring technology and supporting AUKUS, it, you don't have the same leverage as you do working with the Brits, where you're half the build, where you're co-equal partners. So there's your points are absolutely right, but man, are the politics complicated? Let's talk a little bit more about complications um, because we don't do these things because they're easy. Um, Haley mentioned workforce, ITAR, the U.S. tech transfer rules have got to be broken. What in the near term are you looking for, Pete, to see that we're actually dealing with some of these, you know? Um, engineering and legal and bureaucratic complications? Yeah, I think you've hit on the two really big ones. And I, I would leave with workforce, workforce and workforce. And and I say that three times because it's important in the short, medium and long term. And it's important for the UK, US and Australia. We're short of workers. We know this. We know the Navy's short of submariners. We know the Navy's just sort of sailors, full stop. The Defence Force is short of personnel. Um, so we've got to solve those issues and then the defence industry side of the fence. And we can't go out and borrow, buy, beg or steal them from the UK and the USA because they have exactly the same problems that we have. And one of the things about this pact that I know officials have been talking about is an agreement that they're not going to steal workers from each other because there's just not enough to go around. It'd, so, be, it'd, be, nice, it'd be nice if if the different services and departments and think tanks and consulting groups in Australia had the same agreement, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And and the workforce issues are massive challenges. Now, we know we've suffered a bit because of COVID and the restriction of migration in all three of our countries during that tough period that we went through. But we can't just reach out to um, and import workers from around the world and put them straight into these jobs. These the technology here we're talking about is the most secret or one of the most secret bits of military technology on the face of the planet. That's why it's such a big deal for the US to share it with us, but also continually and upgrade the level of sharing they do with the United Kingdom. So what we're going to have to look to is to backfill workers into the country to fill other jobs and encourage Australians or those who can get through security clearances to go into the submarine workforce area Navy is going to have to go on a massive recruitment campaign around this. Um, these boats are bigger and have a bigger crew than the Collins class submarines, in particular the Virginias. One of the reasons I'm happy that we just don't go down the Virginia build, despite the wonderful um, advantages on some levels that will provide, is they have a very big crew complement. SSN AUKUS is looking at having a 30 to 35% less crewing requirement. We're going to really struggle to provide the, the naval crews to do this. So there's going to be up to a lot of investment. And behind all this is going to have to come a whole system for the universities like we're in, for the TAFE and trades and skills sector. And of course, to convince people about this, we're going to have to start talking to young people in Australia in high school about jobs, not only in the military, but also in, um, in the defence industry. And there's, you know, the government's done a bit of work on this. Most people don't if they think of a defence industry job, they think you're going to put them in a uniform. 
um, and they're not really that aware of, of this. So hopefully one of the positives of this big and enormous announcement of this money is people are more conscious of it in their public front of mind. But there's going to have to be a huge amount of work from government, from industry, from the state governments, the Commonwealth governments, from the military and everybody to really promote the idea that there is um, lots of jobs here. And Pat Conroy, I think, hit the nail on the head. If you're a young person today looking at a high-skilled, high-paying job, you could get into the AUKUS submarine program and retire and the program will still be going. You can spend your whole career in there in a very well-paid, very high-tech, um, very cutting-edge career that would be really fascinating, but we're going to have to convince people to do it. And it's going to be really hard. I toured, as you know, Pete, I toured the the lines where they make the Virginia Columbia class subs in Groton, Connecticut and in Quonset before I moved to Australia. Talked to a lot of the workers on the line. Um, the, the companies and the Defense Department and the state governments in Connecticut and Rhode Island have a program where they do training for high school kids, um, internships and um, you know, by the time they graduate, they're welding nuclear powered submarines together and then and then moving on to more advanced skills. And they're they're doing it with that exactly in mind. This is a this is a career for their whole life with their with their friends from school and and in their neighborhood. Um, let's let's talk before we go to questions about two of the criticisms we're hearing. There's a certain amount of, you know, um, there's some temper tantrums. There's a little bit of hyperventilation, but there are also some legitimate criticisms. We've touched on some of them. Um, two in particular that are repeated. Uh, one is the regional reaction, uh, and the other is you know this question of sovereignty. Is Australia losing sovereignty? So Haley, to you first on regional, and I'll just sort of preface it by saying the idea that China is now targeting Australia because of AUKUS is laughable. Anyone who knows uh, PLA military strategy knows they've been targeting Australia for some time. Um, uh, uh, but we do have to worry a little bit about Southeast Asia. Uh, I think the big maritime powers, Japan, India, um, uh, as well as Vietnam and others, see huge advantage in this um, deterrence capability for themselves. But others, you know, that don't want to get caught in geopolitics like um, smaller states in Southeast Asia, you know, they're, 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 they're nervous a little bit. You've, you've served in government. What, what do you think the Australian, US, UK governments have to do to deal with that particular problem, particularly when our Chinese friends are, you know, pretty actively spreading narratives against AUKUS in the region. Yeah, I mean, um, the PR around this announcement is extremely important and this government has recognised that. They saw the mistakes that were made the previous, you know, 18 months ago when AUKUS was first announced. And, you know, I think the way AUKUS was announced initially, it had to be done secretively because there were many factors that could have prevented the deal from actually happening, um, one of them being France being extremely upset and speaking to America about, about the deal if, if it had come out early. But the repercussions of announcing it in that way that we did 18 months ago was that the region was more shocked about the, the announcement and there was confusion around the nuclear aspect, which is why President Biden was at pains to explain earlier this week that it was nuclear propulsion, not nuclear armed. I mean, the word nuclear, everyone is like, wow, nuclear. Um, so I think uh, this government learned the lessons from last time and it did extensive um, outreach before the announcement. Um, uh, Deputy Prime Minister Miles sent, said that himself, the Prime Minister, uh, Foreign Minister Penny Wong and others placed around 60 calls to countries all throughout the region, Southeast Asia, the Pacific, to France, offered a briefing to China. Um, 
and that they actually explained all of the details so that countries understood what was going to happen. And that is really showing their respect to the region and also helping bring countries along to understand why Australia is doing this. Um, I think one of the relationships we'll have to manage extremely carefully is the one with Indonesia. Um, Indonesia has always been a challenging relationship for us, and there's been a lot of missteps on Australia's um, part in the in the in the past. So Penny Wong is doing her best to engage the region. All of the trips that she has done to the Pacific and Southeast Asia um, have been really um, mend putting you know some mending some wounds from the past. I think the next challenge for us will be speaking with Pacific Island nations to reassure them about nuclear waste questions and the fact that Australia will be making sure we keep the nuclear waste on defence land, whether that's new land that we purchase in the future um, or existing land now, because obviously um, the Pacific's relationship with nuclear issues and nuclear testing is fraught and brings back terrible memories and current issues for them as well. So that piece is really, really important. And um, I think it will be more challenging for Australia, the United States and UK going forward um, to really express really complicated um, issues in a way that the region understands how Australia in particular fits into this picture and is part of reinforcing the security rather than undermining the security. And in fact, I think some of China's rhetoric around Australia creating um, an arms race it's interesting. I mean, I wonder which countries buy into that. I mean, Pete, I what do you think about this? Oh, look, this is the most unbelievable element. You know, just the sheer audacity of China to make statements like this. As you said... Just throwing, before, throwing mud at the wall and seeing what will stick. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they've undertaken the largest military modernisation or expansion program since the Second World War. And in a probably dollars term, it has to become close to the largest we've ever seen in, you know, in the world. Um, China currently operates, you know, 59 submarines. Um, they've built 12 nuclear-powered submarines, many of them nuclear-armed submarines in the last 15 years. And by the time the first AUKUS boat is due to be delivered, SSN AUKUS in, to Australia in 2042, there will be in excess of, you know, the 70 to 75 Chinese submarines offering in the region. So, yeah, if there's an arms race going on, one side is racing, everybody else is, is sort of looking at that and deciding <laughs> they might need to make some, some <laughs> modest, you know, investment. You know, we're, we're looking at building eight nuclear-powered submarines against, you know, the other, the, the Chinese who are looking at having 76. Now, of course, the reason we're doing it is not just for our own security, but for regional security as well, because if you balance out our much more advanced submarines with the US submarines, the Japanese submarines, and look, to be honest, everybody in the region is building, buying or modernising submarines. You can't, you can't name a country, basically, that's got maritime interests in Southeast Asia, East Asia at the moment, who's either not modernising their fleet, expanding their fleet, or actually looking at buying submarines that they didn't have before. So, um, but for the Chinese to come out and say, when they, as you said, Hayley, one of the things the government's been is incredibly open about this. I mean, we've never seen a defence capability announcement that says, by the way, this number, this $368 billion is the training costs, the supply chain costs, the infrastructure costs, the basing costs, the people costs, the platform costs, the weapons costs, the sustainment costs. This is as close to a holistic notion you can find, but the Chinese are completely opaque. And Xi Jinping in the same week came out and said he's going to increase defence spending by, you know, another considerable amount of money, like more than the entire Australian defence budget is annually. He's going to increase it a layer on layer again. 
to build his great wall of steel. So, you know, um, in, in his own words, so he can protect China and ensure that Chinese interests are guaranteed, in, you know, against those who disagree with China. So like, it, it's, it's wonderful overblown rhetoric. Um, but what worries me is some people actually repeat these lines as if they're true, um, both in the region and also here in Australia at times. So, Pete, before we go to questions, can you um, unpack the sovereignty question? You hear charges that because Australia would depend on US, UK nuclear propulsion technology, there's a loss of sovereignty. You know, presumably these Virginia class will be jointly crewed, loss of sovereignty, and so on and so forth. How should people think about the sovereignty question? Yeah. Well, I think it, it's, a, it's like an onion. You can peel back the layers at the very top level. What the government is talking about is this is investment in capability for a maritime country about protecting our own sovereignty. So this is about helping the safety and security, peace, prosperity and sovereignty of our country. What they're also talking about in the regional context, and Penny Wong has talked extensively since she's become foreign minister about traveling in the region, about having states in the region, having the ability to make choices free of coercion about their own sovereignty. And they're packaging this up very much in that this is about creating a regional balance that will help those states be free to make sovereign decisions for themselves. So they're, they're playing it at that sort of very broad geopolitical level. But most people are worried about the sovereignty question in terms of sovereign capabilities and control over our military. Now, the PM has been very, very clear. This is a pathway, an optimal pathway, not just for capability, but for sovereign capability. And, uh, and I agree with Haley. it would be cheaper to buy these off the shelf from overseas than build it in Australia, that's true. The politics of that, I think, are pretty much impossible unless we build them in Australia. And one of the other arguments about building ships in Australia is about it gives us sovereign control of that capability, because particularly by building them, you also learn how to maintain them and sustain them. Um, and then you have that capacity to build them themselves. Now, we won't build it all. The reactors will come from either Rolls-Royce in the UK or from the United States. But we've heard, you know, Malcolm Turnbull um, as a former PM and some other people saying this is, the, you know, the end of sovereignty as we know it. But their definitions of sovereignty about military capability are no different to what we've operated with for decades and decades and decades. I mean, you look at our Air Force, it has F-35s and it has Super Hornets. It has P-8 maritime patrol aircraft. These are American aircraft that we buy from the United States. We do the maintenance and sustainment the same way that most countries in the world do. The F-35 Joint Strike Fighter not only has a part from every state in the United States of America, but has um, seven other countries that are involved in the production, including Australia, of that. So even a state the size of the United States of America can't necessarily always get complete sovereignty over their military capability. And very few countries in the world can do this. If you look at a big country like India, that's very reliant on, on Russian military technology, but once you import that, you own it, you control it, you can maintain it, and you can deliver it. It's about it being under the sovereign control. And the key thing I think people are worried about is if we have a Virginia-class submarine, who, who is in control of where that submarine goes and what it does? And the Australian government's been very clear that that will be majority crewed by Australians, the captain will be in Australia, and it will be taking its orders from the Australian government and not from anybody else. Let's get to some questions. There are a lot of very good questions across a broad range. Um, and uh, some of them are sort of directed to indiv individuals on the panel. But um, question for both of you uh, from Pat Buchan. Um, 
what does the government here have to do to engage the public, the Australian public on this going forward? We've raised a lot of questions. There are things we like, there are things we aren't sure about. What does the government have to do? You can start, Haley, to, to continue building its case. God, this is the um, $368 billion question. Um, wow. It's really hard because, like I said before, there are so many other competing national priorities. Um, and defence is one of the things where you can't physically show people the benefits. I mean, one of the best things to say, this is horrible to say, that the Ukraine war did is show European countries the value of their defences. We don't have the same situation. We have this fantastic geographical location. Um, and countries um, in our region, you know, have territorial disputes, which we simply do not have. So Australia doesn't want to be drawn into conflict. But the honest truth of it, and this was also I was thinking about sovereignty and, and reliance, we are reliant on a secure, stable region for everything. I mean, and a nation's um, well-being is not just its security, it is its prosperity, it's its quality of life, it's its social resilience. And so... The message that the government needs to send is an extremely complicated one because people are going to need to engage at a deeper level than what the communication mechanisms that we have today are. So on Twitter or, or social media, it is very difficult to communicate these very complex issues because you have counter narratives that have a lot more cut through. I mean, it's the reason why uh, we had President Trump is because he got media cut through, even though a lot of what he said wasn't true. So how do you, in this new era, communicate something like this to the Australian public? Part of it is honesty and transparency, but I'm also a big believer in that there shouldn't be complete honesty or transparency, including in your private lives. Like you don't tell your friends everything you think all the time. So I think it's going to be an extremely difficult balance. I mean, shamelessly to give a plug to think tanks, Think tanks are at the nexus of explaining government policy with people from academia and explaining it in a public forum. So you need more of us. Um, it is true, though. You really need people to communicate well to the public in a way that there's cut through so that they will understand what the government is doing and be brought along over a 30-year journey. Um, thank you. Uh, Michael DePercy from University of Canberra has a question, which I think would be good for Pete to answer because of your experience in higher education, which is basically what is, is the expectation of and the opportunity for the university sector in AUKUS, you know, from technology to workforce and skill building? Yeah, look, it, it's absolutely enormous. And I saw um, some announcements from the group of eight uh, research universities that they're going to go over to have visits with their UK and US colleagues to discuss this. I know uh, Sydney University has extensive relations that we're in um, with countries in the UK and the US. University in New South Wales have, have their own AUKUS partnership with the, with the university each in the UK and the US. And this is going to be on multiple levels. The, the university sector has an enormous role to play. And, and you know, in terms of engagement, as Ali's talked about with the public, but I really, really hoping the government will be more forthcoming and more direct in their engagement with the universities and make this more of a partnership. There's a training component. So we're going to have to train more people to do marine architecture, people who can operate submarines. I saw one report saying we're, we're looking up to needing nearly 100 PhDs a year across a whole range of areas for the next sort of generation to get enough skilled people to not only be able to deliver on this project, but then to train, train the next generation that comes behind them. This is an enormous opportunity in research and development. And, and the education piece of this as well, because you just don't need the marine architects and the engineers and the nuclear scientists. You need uh, accountants 
You know, you need project management. I mean, project management, this is an enormous series of very large projects that will be then broken up and come into even smaller parts that are big enough by themselves that are very large on top of it. And I don't think we should underestimate the TAFE area as well. As you said, Mike, in the United States, they have a sophisticated way to engage people to do welders. I mean, the number of welders you need to do this type of work. And I was lucky enough to be down at the Collins class yard recently where they're doing the full um, cycle docking and then looking at the life of type extension for Collins. I mean, you have to cut the hull of the submarine and then weld it back together. And they weld it in a continuous weld in multiple shifts over about a two-week period. That is some of the most highly skilled welders on the face of the planet who have to do that work. And we have to have a not just a current workforce, but a future workforce to be able to train them. So the education piece of this is enormous. And, and you know, I'm a, way back at the beginning of my career, I was a high school teacher. I spent some time as the Pro Vice Chancellor of Education at UWA. And what actually really worries me is uh, the level of high school education and awareness. We've got states in Australia who are pushing students away from doing TAFE courses or ATARs in year 11 and 12. And, and any discussion on the work of the future and any prediction by anyone who looks at that says, you know, low skilled or unskilled jobs are going to be automated out the door. We have to upskill our people. This is a great opportunity for that. And that's a really good question because we shouldn't underestimate the challenge in the training, education, research and development place. And of course, universities are the largest contributors to R&D in our economy, um, uh, much greater than as a portion, for instance, in say in the UK and the US as well. Um, let me direct the next one to Haley. It's from J. Boom Kim from the Korea America Association. But there are a couple of questions in the queue about this, uh, this topic, um, uh, Korea, Japan, uh, others docking into AUKUS. Um, what are the possibilities? Um, on pillar two, I feel like the possibilities are much stronger than pillar one uh, because there's no got, not going to be a nuclear submarine for everyone. No one, no one gets a prize. It's just us. <laughs> so I think on pillar two, in some of those um, advanced defence ca capabilities where we're already working very closely, um, not just with Five Eyes countries, but more closely with Japan and South Korea and maybe down the track as well, India, um, we do need to work closely with these countries because in supply chains, we're going to need a lot more things that have dual use applications. I mean, the, the classic example is semiconductors. Um, but in other things that are world leading technologies, we're going to have to work with them because they have some of the best and brightest. So we are already seeing movements to do that. But with AUKUS, we see it's going to create more of a mindset shift in the US, uh, UK and Australia about the imperative to actually cooperate more closely. Um, what we would need to help that along with other countries like Japan, South Korea, India, is something else that would actually be a signal to governments in those countries and our own and our officials to break down sort of invisible barriers, other cultural barriers that exist to doing things more closely together. So I would like to see something else um, developed to actually move that along because I think we could achieve things faster in some cases by including those countries on um, the countries that are fantastic at automation and AI. We, sh we should really be benefiting from them. And they have significant defense budgets. They have significant technological um, advances, as you've said. And the reality is US bilaterally with Japan, especially, but also Korea is doing a lot of this pillar two stuff already hypersonics yep. and so forth. So yep. it seems natural. I think in the Japan case, security of information will be the biggest sort of thing to overcome. Yeah, um, and that's what I was going to say. That speed. 
The, yeah. the, the real big thing we that those countries need to develop to bridge that gap to get closer to working with us on AUKUS is their own internal security me mechanisms, their cyber security, their physical security, you know, the counter espionage work. That, um, you know, I think the UK and US and Australia are able to do that much easier because we're part of the Five Eyes Intelligence Network. Um, and that smoothed the way for this technology transfer, and which means we have the highest standards in the world of that levels of secrecy. Um, and so if those other countries can build up their capacities in those areas, it'll make it much easier to bring them into these uh, into these really critical areas. As Haley said, you know, quantum computing, undersea capabilities, artificial intelligence, you know, sharing the cutting edge um, uh, areas of that. Um, there are a couple of questions, which I think I'll take on for a minute about um, US reliability. Um, will the Virginia class subs be approved by Congress? Will a future American administration honor Joe Biden's commitment? Um, look, the reality is over the life of this uh, endeavor, um, there are a lot of scenarios for politics in the UK and Australia as well. <laughs> the US isn't the only country that has unpredictable political outcomes from elections. Um, and as Pete said, this shows a remarkable level of trust. And I think for good reason, um, despite the uncertainties that elections and politics in a democratic society can bring. Um, for one thing, um, in the United States, the support for AUKUS and the support for Australia is very bipartisan um, in the Congress, but also in the public. You know, we've surveyed this at the U.S. Studies Center, and um, Americans um, have always been pro-alliance by a pretty wide margin. The big shift in the last few years is that Americans now from 45% to 60% say Australia's capabilities make America safer. The US needs this for its own interests. Um, we have five eyes and um, other deep, deep historical roots for um, trust. I'm sure people are wondering, well, what if Donald Trump becomes president again? Or, you know, uh, Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, recently um, uh, got headlines because he was critical of the U.S. commitment to Ukraine. But if you read what DeSantis said, or if you look at how the Trump administration behaved, um, the, the right wing of the Republican Party is skeptical about Europe, not about Asia. Um, these, are, these are not um, isolationists, they're Asia firsters. Um, it may not be a very subtle Asia first policy. It may be pretty, pretty... Uh, rambunctious and spicy on anti-China rhetoric, but that I think that the, the support for deterrence is pretty strong. Um, the, the complications in US politics are gonna be just the general dysfunctional aspects of Congress because of a narrow Republican uh, minority and you know year to year um, continuing resolutions on our budget. There are a lot of sort of procedural complications, but I think in terms of will, it's pretty robust. If you look at polls, if you look at congressional opinions, if you look at the, if you look closely at the opinions of potential candidates. But look, this is one of the uncertainties about this politics. Um, quick final question for each of you, 10 seconds each. Um, uh, when we are all on our front porch and our dotage in, well, me and Pete anyway, in 25, 30 years, what will the Australian submarine force look like? Predictions. We'll come back and do a webcast or whatever technology exists in 30 years. Uh, Haley, what do you think? I'm not going to end on a negative note. Um, so that was a hard question for you to give me. It will look better than it does today. We will have nuclear submarines. Um, I think uh, how many, I don't know. Um, I definitely think the US deal will come through. And uh, so I think that we will definitely realize aspects of this deal. Pete? 
Uh, look, I've got the high level of confidence Haley does. If you look at the, the details of this, this is a good deal for the United States. We're investing in uplifting US capabilities, US shipyards. This is going to then have a long-term boost to their ability to, to build their own things. There's going to be plenty of US jobs out of this as well. So I think you, you can sell this, not just to Congress, um, not just from the security side, but from a whole range of, of, of issues. And as you said, Mike, the public opinion view that security of Australia is good for the security of, of the United States, I think is a real key tipping point. I agree with Haley. we will have nuclear-powered submarines. The big thing will be the interesting mix of what that fleet looks like. Um, I, I actually like the deal on a number of levels because there's, again, when you get into the details, so it's three to five Virginia-class submarines. Why? Because when we do the life-of-type extensions of the Collins-class submarines, if all those timelines are met, we won't need the extra two Virginia class because we'll have the Orcas boats and we'll be able to drop off the Collins class. And we'll actually be able to drop off Collins earlier and only do a full life of type extension for four out of the six boats. But if that doesn't work out or Orcas submarine boats don't turn up on time because everyone knows the risk of defence blowing out budgets and timescales, the option there is to buy additional Virginia class submarines. So again, there's no capability gap. So it's another reason for that $100 billion flexibility in the price tag is there is multiple decision points coming along. And this is why I'm hesitant to make too much of a guess. I made the, the note in the Australian the other day, this is the, you know, the end of the beginning with a very, very long way off from the beginning of the end. The number of decision points um, for governments is huge. Think about the number of governments in Australia alone between now and elections to 2054. Um, and I think you're right, Mike. People, because of Trump, people are worried about the United States and worried about Trump. Who can think what Australian electoral politics will look like in 2054? Who predicted the teal wave? You know, what will happen on the left of Australian politics or on the far right of Australian politics? And we've also seen what's been happening in the UK. So, but I think if you look back over the, the, the arc of our long-term democratic history, we have these movements here and there, but in the end, that there's this sort of sensible centre that prevails where we've in the past been able to share technologies. All military capability of this level takes 20, 30, 40 years to develop. And we've done this since the Second World War and can, and, and I think that will hold through. So, yep, optimistically, we will have nuclear-powered submarines. How many, of what type and what brand? And most interestingly, I want the Navy to tell us what they're going to call them. You know, yeah. there's nothing like having, we don't want SSN buddy boat face. We want, you know, let's get out <laughs> there and pick, pick some really good names for some submarines. You know, the, the Brits have a good, you know, um, record of some really cool names. So uh, let's let's see what our Navy's going to come up with as well, because this will be, an you know, one of the interesting PR elements to keep it in the public interest and the public mind. Always very, very important. Look, I'd say uh, very likely there will be the Virginia class. Probably you'll have the AUKUS class. But, but when we meet in 30 years to reminisce, I think the element that people will be surprised at is the very, very large fleet of autonomous undersea vehicles that comes out of Pillar 2 yep. that constitute the, the cutting edge of deterrence uh, undersea and keep this region safe. It's not just the nine or so subs. It's the constellation of autonomous AI-driven vehicles that just make it too hard to consider using force uh, by an adversary against Australia, the US, or our friends. That 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 I think is 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 the future we're looking at. But man, as Haley said, we don't do these because they're easy. Uh, this will be hard. Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, if I can add a one finger on that, one of the things I didn't mention, the beauty of the nuclear-powered submarine is that power plant to run autonomous systems, to run sensors. Diesel electric boats have very limited battery life. 
they are, they husband their battery power very carefully. You don't have to worry about that with a nuclear powered submarine. You can add sensor after sensor, autonomous system after autonomous system, because you've got that big nuclear power plant driving your boat. People interested don't have to wait 30 years for us to rejoin on this issue. We'll be putting out reports and doing more webinars, including when the Defense Strategic Review comes out. But that's it for now. Um, Haley, Pete, thank you. And thank you, everyone online for joining us.